First Peter, we'll be in chapter 3. Um, want to remind you is, uh, ladies, moms, we do have gifts for you. Uh, so right outside this door, this door, and in the back, there is a little magnetic board for you. Uh, to put on your refrigerator and it's just a sheet where you can record uh, prayers or praises or just a, a to-do list to kind of keep everything organized. And so that is our gift to you uh, this morning from First Baptist Church. We're going to be in First Peter chapter 3 this morning. We've been uh, working our way through Revelation, uh, but we've decided to kind of hit pause for the summer as people will be in and out, and uh, we decided just to kind of go a different direction. Uh, and so this summer, we're going to be working our way through the Beatitudes starting in about two weeks. Uh, that'll get us through uh, the end of July, and, and, and then we'll pick Revelation back up in chapter 11. Um, but uh, for the next two weeks, I just kind of felt, and I, I kind of felt like the, the Lord had kind of pointed me in the direction that uh, it's been a while since we've kind of talked a little bit about marriage, and I thought we might need a little refresher course uh, in, the, in the room. And so we're just going to spend two weeks uh, talking about marriage. And so this morning, we'll look at women and submission in marriage. So uh, happy Mother's Day. Uh, <laughs> I told somebody the other day, I said, you don't even got to get your wife a present. Just tell her to come to church. I'll take care of it. That'll be the present for the day. She's joking. Don't, don't tell Beth Moore I said that. Okay, golly. Get me in trouble. All right. Let's, uh, let's pray. All right. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've given us. I thank you for each and every person that's here. Uh, I thank you uh, for all the, the babies in, in our, our, our church. Um, uh, I just thank you for what a blessing and what a gift that is. Uh, again, as Jay said, help us as a church to uh, commit to helping them and walking alongside them. Uh, be with us now as we just look at this text of scripture as we talk about marriage. Uh, Father, I, I really believe with all my heart that this is a great text for Mother's Day. Uh, and there's some really good stuff in there elevating women and, and, and their status and just showing uh, what, a, what a gift and what a help they are in our, our homes uh, and so uh, I, I just pray that we would honor um, our wives, that we would honor our moms today in this room as we study this text. Uh, I pray for the men in this room because really so much of what happens in a marriage is, is all about the tone that we set uh, and that you hold us responsible for that. And so I just pray that as, as men, we would commit ourselves uh, to loving our wives and to, to caring for them and to sacrificially giving uh, ourselves over to them, Father, uh, because uh, that makes all the difference in the world. And the reason we do that is not to gain points with you, but it's because Jesus did the same thing for us. And so above all, I pray that this all just be grounded and steeped in the gospel. Uh, and it's in your name we pray, amen. Uh, the, the books of First and Second Peter were written by the uh, Apostle Peter, right? And so it's important we, we understand the background before we just jump right into it. Uh, and he's writing this letter of First Peter while he's in Rome. Right? And we know that because at the end of 1 Peter, he says, Greetings from Babylon, which would have been code at that time for the Roman Empire. Uh, and he's writing to what he calls the elect exiles in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Uh, these places, if you were to look them up on a map, would be uh, what is known as modern-day Turkey uh, today. And it, it's, it's a huge area covering about 125,000 square miles. Now, now, Peter wrote this letter to these churches during uh, the reign of, of Emperor Nero. So if you know anything about uh, history, you know that, that Emperor Nero was nuts. Uh, the dude was crazy. 
uh, literally set fire to Rome and tradition says, whether it's true or not, that he played the fiddle and he danced while the suckers burned into the ground. So after it's all over and people start going, well, hey, uh, Nero, why did you set your city on fire? In order to divert attention away from himself, he goes, oh, I didn't do it. It was the Christians that did it. And so from that point on, this mass persecution of Christians begins to take place. He starts crucifying them. Uh, he takes some of them and what he does is he sews them up in the skins of wild animals and then he says, hey, run. And he sends wild hunting dogs after these, these Christians. He would tie women to bulls and have them drugged through the city. He was known to burn Christians at the stake at his garden at night and then ride his chariot through the burning bodies just having a grand old time. He was crazy. Now, most likely, this outbreak had not reached the pe people that Peter's writing to, but they were still suffering small local persecution. So all commentators agree that it was sporadic, personal, social ostracization, more than likely at a local level. Uh, when, when Joe taught through this this past fall with your students, one of the things he told the kids was is that what was going on with these churches is no different than what Christians have faced throughout history is that basically they were made fun of. They were teased. They were harassed into compromising their faith in little ways, right? The social pressure was being put on them to just kind of compromise. It's not that big a deal to completely follow through on what you believe, those sort of things. And ultimately, the reason for their persecution was that their conduct was different. Bruce Shelley, who's a church historian, says, men always view with suspicion people who are different. Conformity not distinctiveness is the way to a trouble-free life. So the more early Christians took their faith seriously, the more they were in danger of crowd reaction. And so Peter's main concern when you read his two uh, letters is what we would call tolerance or diversity or religious pluralism today. And so the letter's a few thousand years old, but I think it's timely for us, especially here in Spearman, because what we tend to do is we go, well, yeah, okay, we see some of the persecution out there, right? We see pastors in Canada being pulled over and arrested and some of that stuff that's happening, but that's, that's out there, not here in Spearman. We're okay here in Spearman. And, and that's true to a great extent, right? We have a great group of people here. We can worship freely, all that stuff. But do you remember like 90s fashion trends, like when you grew up out here? Like by the time it got here and we were actually wearing cool stuff, we go to the city and we're like, hey, you know, everything's changed, right? It takes a while to get here. So eventually the persecution that we see, it will find its way to us. And so what's happening right now in America is that we're going from a moral majority to a prophetic minority. Church membership just hit an all-time low in America. Right? COVID has begun the process of thinning the herd, so to speak. People have left. They are not coming back. The decline of Christian morals in our country is going to continue. And as it continues, it will contrast our views in a way that is opposed to the world around us. Correct? Right? So we believe in, in marriage is between a man and a woman. We believe that sex or, is confined to the covenant of marriage. We believe that God made two genders, male and female. We believe in protecting the life of the unborn. And as we continue to stand on these things, we will be more and more opposed to the world around us. So Peter encourages these Christians and us to stand strong for Jesus in the face of a changing culture. And the very first thing he does in his book is he grounds us in the gospel. Look with me, if you will, in 1 Peter. Just look at chapter 1, look at verses 1 and 2. 
He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So Peter says, you're elect exiles. All right, now listen. The word elections in the Bible, it's not a dirty word. It just means that God does the saving, not you. That's all it means. So it means that you and I bring nothing to the table. You did not earn your salvation. You weren't so awesome that God saved you. And because you're not awesome, you need someone to save you. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He lived a life you should have lived. He died the death you deserved. He took your place. He did what you could not. And when it's all said and done and you and I get to heaven and God says, okay, hey, why should I let you in? We're gonna look around the room and say, I'm with him, right? That guy, Jesus, I'm with him. That's why you let me in. So Peter says, if you've trusted in Jesus for salvation, you're elect, you're chosen. And because of that, that now has made you an exile. It means your citizenship is now somewhere else, that this world is not your home, that you won't be home, and the world will make sure you know you're not at home until Jesus returns. That's what it means. And so he does this right off the bat because he wants to give you and I a reminder that since we are saved, our obedience to Jesus will put us at odds in the world in which we live. And so as he goes through the book of 1 Peter, what he does is he lays out how our conduct is to look. And, and he looks at different parts of our lives. He says, hey, as Christians, how you relate to the government is different. Hey, as Christians, the way that you treat your employer, employees and in the way you uh, are responsive to your employer is different. And then ultimately he says, hey, the way that you live out the values of the gospel in your marriage is completely different than the world around you, Right? And so let me just do this before we dive right into the text. I'm gonna give you just uh, three views of marriage very quickly to kind of lay the groundwork for, for where we're at before we go into what Peter has to say, okay? So the first view of marriage is this. It's non-Christian feminism. So, so in this view, there, there's no gender distinction between husbands and wives, right? And, and a lot of times in, in this view, they, they have separate everything. So separate money, separate bedrooms, in some cases, separate interests, separate hobbies, right? Now they, they may have kids. They may not. Most likely they, they don't, right? The, the, the birth rate in the United States just hit an all-time low. So you have more and, people, more and more people choosing not to have children, right? Because you're overpopulating the planet, you big bad heathens, right? And you're gonna kill everybody. And so they're not having kids. They're, they're not, you know, even with COVID, you would have thought the birth rate would have went up, right? You're locked in your house, nothing to do. I mean, the birth rate, it didn't, okay? It didn't. Um, and if they do have kids, um, their lives really don't intersect much, right? So, so that would be non-Christian feminism, right? The, the second one is, is this, is Christian egalitarianism. And this one has been growing in, in popularity. I mean, sadly, even in very conservative crowds, this is growing, so, so this view would say that men don't have certain responsibilities and, and neither do wives. Now, I'm not talking about household chores, right? When I say responsibilities, right? So it's not where you as a man get to go, well, I don't do dishes, that's girl stuff. No, you should probably help and do dishes, all right? Don't be that guy, okay? You should help around the house. That's not what we mean, right? 
It, it just means that, that you have a responsibility as a man, she has a responsibility as a woman, and that God has given those things, okay? Um, in this view, oftentimes they have separate lives as well that just intersect every now and then. And listen, usually in this view, the kids hold the marriage together. And usually when the kids leave the house, the family split, okay? So, so you see this in, in, in marriages where it's all about the kids. It's never about mom and dad having time together. It's never about mom and dad doing anything together. It's all about the kids, the kids, the kids, the kids, the kids. And listen, that's great. We should be about our kids, but your marriage will be better if you spend time with mama too, right? You're a better husband, you're a better father, you're a better parent when mom and dad have time together, okay? And then the third view is Christian complementarianism, all right? Now, in this view, it says this, that God is over the marriage and that the Christian husband lovingly, sacrificially leads his wife, okay? The wife then respects and follows the leadership of her husband. The kids honor and respect mom and dad. So what this view means is this, is that God created men and women equally as image bearers. So men and women in the room, we are all equal in God's sight. We all bear God's image. But inside of a Christian marriage, God says there are differing roles. So we see this in creation. Adam was created first, then Eve was created as helper. Adam named Eve. God then named the human race in, man, in, in Corinthians mankind, correct? Right, later on in, for, uh, well, uh, the, the serpent came to Eve first, <clears throat> reversing what God did by speaking first to Adam. So God spoke first to Adam, Eve comes and he speaks, or uh, Satan comes and he speaks first to Eve. After the fall, who did God speak to first? Adam. Not Eve, he, he goes to Adam. Later on in 1 Corinthians, we're told that Adam, not Eve, represented the entire human race. And when you get to the fall of mankind in Genesis chapter 3, it brings a distortion of God's roles, not new roles. Okay, does that make sense? It brings a distortion of God's roles, not new roles. So Adam was told to work the garden before the fall. After the fall, nothing changed. Adam is to work. It's just that now work is no fun. It's hard. It's, it's tedious. It's toil. Uh, it's, it's rough. All right? Eve was told that there would be pain in childbirth, but more than anything, Eve was told that her desire will be for her husband and that he will rule over her. So in other words, is that Eve would always have a wrong desire to usurp the authority of her husband inside of marriage. That was the curse. Now, the redemption though, of sinners through Jesus Christ, through the gospel, through his life, death, and resurrection, they bring back and reaffirms the creative order. So in Ephesians 5, through 24, it says, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Colossians 3, 18 and 19. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And then again in 1 Peter chapter 3. Read with me if you will in verses 1 and 2. Peter says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives 
when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So the word likewise right there at the start of chapter three is pointing us back to chapter two, verses 21 through 25. And it says this, it says, for to, to, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. So in other words, before he gives any commands on marriage, he says, let's go back and look at the gospel. Let's go back and see what Jesus did, all right? The Bible never starts with you and what you should do. It always starts with God and what he's done first, right? So Jesus did this for you. Now you live because of what Jesus has done, right? And so that's what he says. He says, Jesus was submissive. Jesus was obedient to God's will. And since Jesus served us by dying for us, we serve Jesus and are obedient to Jesus. And what he wants you to know is that there's a Trinitarian aspect to what Peter is saying. So inside of the Trinity, right? The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, we see submission. The Father sends the Son. The Son submits to the Father's will. Then the Father and the Son send the Holy Spirit. All three in the Trinity are equal but they have differing roles. So inside of our marriage, we're equal as image bearers, but we have differing roles. So the husband submits to God as the ultimate authority, and then he lovingly and sacrificially leads his wife. So do you catch that? That's not oppressive, it's not mean. The husband lovingly and sacrificially leads his family because that's what Jesus did for the husband, right? So men, it has to start there. The wife submits then to her husband's leadership. In chapter two, verses 21 through 25, we, we see the links in which Jesus has gone to save and bring us back to God. So ladies, your love, your reverence for God and what he's done for you through Jesus is your reason then for submitting. So if Jesus has changed your heart inside of the marriage, there's obedience to what Jesus has called you to do. Now let's just clarify and let's talk about what submission is, right? Because I'm getting bad looks already from some of you girls like, oh my gosh, 2021, you can't be teaching on that. When I'm talking about submission, I'm not, I'm talking about the big things in your marriage. Like, so, so little things like where we eat, that's not where this comes in, okay? So like if she wants soup and you want a hamburger, get her soup, all right? Listen, I'm an idiot. Let me, let me tell you my story. When we were pregnant with Ellie, Mariah wanted this Japanese steakhouse in Lubbock called Yamagata. She loved it right? We get to the steakhouse and I have a disease. It's called impatience. And I, I'm awful. Like I want it done yesterday, not today. And so we get to the restaurant and, and I do this all the time. I go in, they're like, yeah, well, that'll, that'll be a 45 minute wait, sir. Well, because I'm so impatient, I start thinking, well, I can get across town and I can eat, you know, in less than 45 minutes. Well, usually by the time you make that decision, you get to the car, you get across town and you get to the other place to eat. Well, it's been 45 minutes, right? I haven't learned yet. I've got, I've got a little, no, okay, I haven't gotten any better. All right, so I did it the other day at the palace. They were like, it's a 50 minute wait. I was like, well, I'll go all the way to the other side of Amarillo. Well, it took 50 minutes. So um, I think, well, I'm not waiting. Get in the car, we're gonna go. And I'm thinking, I'll just take her to Lynn's Buffet. 
Now this was like before kids, so we still ate before 5.30, okay? So it's like eight o'clock, nine o'clock at night, I don't remember. Have you ever been to Lynn's Buffet at eight o'clock, nine o'clock at night in Lubbock? Not a good place, man. Like, there were some characters in there. And she's crying, she's bawling, and so I've learned my lesson. Like if that's what she wants, mama's getting what she wants to eat, okay? So, so that's not where this comes in with submission, okay? Submission means this. There are going to be major decisions in your marriage that are gonna come up. Major financial decisions, job decisions, relocation decisions, decisions regarding the kids, and God is ultimately going to hold the man responsible in those situations, period. After sin entered the world, God did not show back up in the garden and go, hey, Eve, where are you at? No, God said, Adam, where are you at, boy? Why are you hiding? We've gotta have a conversation. See, it's in those situations when this comes up in a healthy marriage, right? What happens is we have a major decision that comes up. Something big is going on. So the husband begins to pray over the issue. He then discusses it with his wife and he either patiently waits for the wife to agree with him through her prayer, through her processing, okay? Or listen, God changes his mind and he comes to see the wisdom in her disagreement, which oftentimes there's a lot of wisdom there, right men? Okay, and the decision's then made. But ultimately, whatever decision is made, the responsibility's on the husband. So you look at it this way. If Jesus showed up to your house today, and ladies, you answered the door, Jesus would say, I'll deal with you later. Where's he at? He's going to deal with us as men first. So when we talk about submission, all we're saying is this, is that ladies, it means to respect your husband knowing that God has placed a responsibility on him for the entire family. And I hope that's hitting some of you men with a heavy weight because you will answer for your family. I will answer for my family. We will answer for all the things that we do and how we lead them. Now, Peter isn't telling you, ladies, to submit to all men. He doesn't say submit to every man you meet. It's not in there. He says, submit to your husband. Then the objection comes up. Well, what if my husband's not a Christian? Well, Peter takes care of you there too, right? And in verse two, Peter says uh, that, that um, well, at the end of verse one, he says, if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct, all right? So, so Peter says there's two things going on in a marriage. It's got an evangelistic focus. One to the world, the other to your home. So chapter two, verse 12 says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, he says, we want the unbelieving world to see our conduct. So especially in a world that's moving further and further away from the idea of biblical manhood and biblical womanhood, we want an unbelieving world to see our conduct and go, hey, there's something different about that marriage. There's something different about the way that they lead. That's what he means. See, we live in a world right now that says men are all stupid and dumb and the problem is men, right? You're all just steeped in patriarchy in here. You're a bunch of barbarians and you're just keeping all the women down and you're causing all the problems in the world. Now listen, are there guys out there like that? Yeah, there's a lot of stupid bubbas out there that treat women that way, yes. But most of the men I know love their wives and they treat them well. And so what he's saying is that, hey, 
Inside of your home, when they see that, there's an evangelistic focus to a world that doesn't get this. But then inside your home, Peter says, some of your husbands don't know Jesus. Listen, you still submit and live out the gospel in front of him on a daily basis. You live out the truths of scripture. And in so doing, it says, your husband may be one to the Lord without a word. So, so this isn't easy, right? It's, it, it may not happen. It, it may take years. But regardless, you live out the gospel in front of your husband. Now, it doesn't mean that you never talk about Jesus. It doesn't mean that you never talk about what God's doing in your life. What it means is that you pick your spots. It means that, that you find those places where you tell him about Jesus. Ultimately, all right, and I'm about to get in trouble, it means you don't be a nag. That's what it means. So you don't put him down and say, well, you never want to go to church with me, right? I'm always going to have to take the kids to church, right? Oh, you don't have any relationship with the Lord and you just put him down and you beat him down over his lack of faith, right? That's being a nag. And the Bible says a lot about nags, okay? Proverbs 21.9, it's better to live in the corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome woman. Proverbs 27.15, a continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. <laughs> Bible's funny. So live out the gospel in front of him, praying for God to change him. You don't beat him down all day or he's just gonna shut down. Peter says, let him see your respectful and pure conduct. Now, the word respectful, it's the Greek word phobos. It means fear. In Ephesians 5.22, it says, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. So first and foremost, it means show your husband honor. So ladies, fear God. God's number one, you fear him, and because you fear God, you love Jesus, you submit to, and you honor your husband. And hear me on this, you submit to him as long as he is not asking you to sin. The minute he asks you to do something that's contrary to the scriptures, I ain't doing it. No way, no how, not happening, okay? The word pure means free of moral defilement. So that means if you want to win your husband to Jesus, this means when you get around him and his buddies, you don't act like them. I see that happen a lot with, with women who desperately want their husbands to come to faith, right? And they try to live out the gospel in front of them, but then finally in a moment of weakness, they get around him and all of his moron friends and they decide to act like the moron friends for the weekend and then they lose everything that they worked so hard to lay down in front of that husband, okay? That's what it means. That's what it means. His point is, is that the character and conduct of the wife are things that will win the lost husband to Jesus, not arguments. Wayne, Wayne Grudem says, the unbelieving husband sees this behavior and deep within perceives the beauty of it. Within his heart, there's a witness that this is right. This is how God intended men and women to relate as husband and wife. And he concludes, therefore, that this gospel, which his wife believes, must be true as well. So when we live out the truths of scripture, there's an evangelistic focus to the world and to our homes, right? But look where Peter goes next, verse three. He says, don't let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Okay. So let's understand the Roman context before we start going, well, I can't wear jewelry, all right? That's not what he means. 
See, a woman in this culture was not allowed to have friends outside of her husband's circle of friends. So if she's out in public with her husband, she's looking good, she's dolled up, that's okay. But if she's headed to church, she looks nice, she's done up, she's pretty, and somebody sees her, they're going, where's she going looking like that? Her husband ain't around, right? Kind of like a small town, but you know, you guys get it. So it would have brought disgrace to her husband and a loss of social standing. So by watching what you wear, it's saying, hey, you're just honoring your husband in that culture. That's what it means. But the other thing is, is that Roman women were obsessed with fashion. They spent a lot of time and a lot of money on fashion. Has anything changed? No, now it's just called wellness, right? We're on Instagram, we're like, oh, I wanna be a, a wellness influencer, right? And, and so we spend a lot of time on wellness and fashions and, and all those things. And so what Peter's saying is like, hey, listen, don't walk around like you're on Real Housewives of Spearman. That's what he's saying. He's saying that the external's not as important as the internal. So what will change your husband and win him to Jesus is the inner beauty within. He says the inner beauty is imperishable, that it won't fade. Your looks are gonna fade. Sorry, ladies, right? Now, people like me, probably not, right? I'm, yeah, I'm going bald. Um, we can't stay young forever, but your soul is forever. So girls, that doesn't mean you can't look nice. In fact, you should look nice, right? Take care of yourself, steward your bodies well. Put on that cute dress and go out on the town with your husband, right? Let him strut around with a good looking girl on his arm. That's a good idea. Men, myself included, we should spend more time bragging and complimenting our wives on how they dress and how they look. Hey, you look good leaving today, honey, looking nice, right? It means look nice in public, but listen, also make sure you're dressing in a way that's honoring to God and your husband. So provocative clothing. Yes, at home, not in public, right? That's for him. That's a good thing. A little marriage tip there, okay? I'm just helping you out. At home, not for everyone, right? Peter says it's a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, that doesn't mean you never speak. Once again, one of the great myths in our day is that, oh, well, women can't speak. That's what the Bible says. No. Martin Luther, talking about his wife, Katie, said, if God had wanted him to be married to a meek woman, he would have had to have carved one out of stone. See, his point was is that Katie was no doormat. So you can disagree with your husband in a kind and respectful way. You're not a robot that just nods and goes, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir, right? You have your own opinions. You're allowed to express those opinions. Just do it in a way that honors your husband and not destroys him, right? Most men are just little porcelain dolls on the inside, right? They're pretty fragile. You gotta be careful. And here's what happens a lot of times is that in your heart, ladies, you can do this without even saying anything because at times in your heart, you start going, man, that was a dumb decision. He's always doing dumb stuff. I can't believe he would do that. And, and you begin to put him down and you begin to think those things. And here's what happens, right? Every time I do premarital counseling, we talk about two things, right? It's very rarely the big thing that blows up a marriage. Very rarely. It's usually something we call creeping separateness where you slowly creep apart and then one day you roll over and go, I don't even know who I'm married to anymore. Or the big one is creeping resentfulness where over time you just begin to think in your mind resentful thoughts towards your spouse. You begin to think, he's an idiot. I can't believe he would do that. And before you know it, you've harbored so much bitterness and resentment that it becomes very, very easy then for you to wonder in your marriage. 
And this isn't just for women, okay? You know who the world's worst is at this? Men, right? Because every one of us men in this room go, well, if she just do it a little bit more like me, be a lot easier, right? I mean, I don't know why you're doing it that way. I wouldn't do it that way, right? I mean, if you just get up a little bit earlier, might get some things done, right? I've never said that. Never said that. Yeah, right? When we do those things, we're not honoring one another. And especially ladies, you're not honoring him. So when you're around town and you run him down and you make him look like Ray Barone, you know, kind of dopey and can't do anything right, you're dishonoring him. And listen, I'm gonna be real honest with you right here too. Some of you ladies, you complain all the time about husbands and how they won't lead. Truth be told is you won't be quiet long enough to let him. Stop running him down. Build him up. Pray and allow God to change his heart. Live out the gospel in front of him. To be gentle. That just means not insistent on one's own rights. And so listen, I get it. Some of you women out there, you're type A personalities. I get it, okay? That's awesome. That's how God made you. We're not trying to change how God made you, but stop using that as an excuse to run over your husband. Love him and allow him to lead by being gentle. That's what that means, okay? All right, now that you're all mad. Verse five, Peter says, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. See, I like what Peter does here. He says, hey, look back at the great women of the Bible. He says, see how they adorned themselves. That word adorned in the Greek is a continuous verbiage. It means that they continually over and over again put on a gentle and quiet spirit. That it was something every day they woke up and they did. It's no different than you and I as men and women. Every day the Bible tells us to run back to the gospel, to remind ourselves of the gospel, to what Jesus has done for us. That it's a continuous action that we never grow out of. And so he says every day they put on a quiet and gentle spirit. It means to, to learn from seasoned saints in the faith. Titus chapter two, verses three through five, it says older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much line. They are to teach what is good and to train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So, that means that some of you older ladies need to be teaching these younger ladies how to adorn themselves. You've been through a lot. You have a lot of wisdom to pass on. Younger ladies, it means look for godly women in this church and just attach yourself to them and say, teach me, can I learn? Can I, can I listen and see how you've done things? And what I love that he does is he points to Abraham, Sarah's wife. Now, remember, he, he's writing to a Greek audience but he's pointing them back to the first lady of God's covenant. He, he's saying, listen, the church is not made up of those who are physically descended from Abraham and Sarah, but those who by faith have trusted in Jesus are now part of the great story of God that you now ladies share a great lineage with the past women of faith. He says, if you do good, all that means is that it's a pattern of life submitting yourself to God and your husband, that the privilege of being saved should lead to a change in behavior. And that's not just for women, that's for all of us, right? The privilege of being saved should change our hearts. And that final line means a woman who is trusted in Jesus, and I love this line, it says, will not be terrified of circumstances, 
or an unbelieving husband because she knows who is in charge. That, that her heart is, is resting in the one who rules and who's created all things. So it means that day by day she submits herself to Jesus and then commits to living the gospel out in front of her family and then she points her family to Jesus. And hear me, that would describe so many of you ladies in this room. That's why this is a great text for Mother's Day. Don't you think? Because it just says, hey, every day you just lay that out there before them in the way that you serve, in the way that you care for your family, in the way that you take them to church, in the way that you tell them about Jesus and you read the bedtime stories, you're pointing them to Jesus. That's a verse to grab a hold of, ladies. I love that. Now, as I close, let me just show you five things that submission is not and five things that it is as we kind of wrap this thing up, okay? And, and this list is not from me. I, I took this uh, uh, several years back from, from a study guide written by a guy named Mark Driscoll. Um, and this is what he says. First off, submission is not, number one, submission is not the husband is the ultimate authority. God is, the government is, the church is. So ladies, it means that you have a higher authority that you can appeal to. So, so if he's beating you, or he's sexually or emotionally or verbally abusive. Now listen to me, I'm gonna tell you something. Get the heck out. You do not stay in a situation like that, right? And I know I'm a pastor telling you to leave. Yes, leave. You don't stay in a situation like that. It means that there's a higher authority if you're in that situation you can appeal to. Call the cops, right? I got some big old boys in this church, call them. We'll come over, I don't know, all right? It means that you do not stay in an abusive relationship. Submission should never be used as an excuse to justify that sort of behavior, okay? Submission is not a wife doesn't have an independent thought. She has plenty of thoughts. Ask her. She's smart, right? It doesn't mean that as women you go look at your husband and say, would you tell me what to think about this? No, you're your own person. Submission is not a wife does not seek to influence her husband, all right? It's not good for man to be alone. Ladies, we need your help. You know that. Mariah's a counselor, more than she wants to be. A friend, a helper. Eve was given to Adam as a helper. Ladies, you are a huge influence in your husband's life. Men, if she isn't, quit being a moron and let her be, all right? Number four, submission is not a wife must obey her husband's command to sin. No, never. You say that's not what God commands, that he's the ultimate authority, not you. Remember, God is over the husband and over all of us, so we obey God first. And then fifth, submission is not a wife is less intelligent or competent than her husband, right? Come on, right? We know plenty of women, most of them are smarter than their husbands. There is a reason men die younger than women. Right after church, all these little boys are gonna be up here like looking over the edge going, oh yeah, I think I can do it, right? I think I can make it to that pew. My kid will do it. Like I've seen that little boy of mine, Scorpion, more times, right? Jumping off of things, right? Holding a knife going, hey, watch this. Or I came in one time, he's trying to stick a quarter in the light socket, right? None of my girls ever did dumb stuff like that. There's a reason why. So listen, in our family, when it comes to money, Mariah's a lot smarter than me. Budget, what's that? Never heard of it, don't care, right? I constantly get in trouble. Hey, did you buy something? Uh-huh, I did. She takes care of all that. You can be the smart one in your relationship. 
and submission does not hinder your intelligence. Don't buy that lie, please. Don't buy that lie. Now, let me give you five things that submission is. First and foremost, submission is a husband and wife are equal with complementary roles. Both sexes bear God's image, male and female. Both reflect truths about Jesus that aren't reflected by males or females alone. Two, wives submit like Jesus did in Gethsemane. He had feelings. He articulated them. Remember that? He asked for the cup to be taken away. He was verbal. He said what he felt, what he thought, but ultimately he says, you make the decision, I will follow. So submission means that, that lady, you can voice, you can, feel you, you can feel, you can voice your opinion, but ultimately you trust your husband. That's what it means, okay? In my marriage, here's how it's worked out. Every time we've moved, ultimately Mariah's trusted me. Now, now she had a say, absolutely. My buddy up at First Baptist Panhandle called me uh, several years ago, said, hey, I'd like to put your name in at, at Spearman. I said, okay, let me talk to my wife about it. She pulled up Google Maps and went, nope, not happening, uh-uh. <laughs> and so I didn't do it for a few months. And then God changed her heart and said, hey, let's go ahead and do it. And so we, we did it. But ultimately, as Mariah's always said, is that she'll follow me anywhere. These are her words, not mine. I'll follow you anywhere. I trust you, Okay. So even if she has doubts about it, she knows that the responsibility rests on me, that God's gonna hold me responsible for where I take him. Th that's what it means. So, so you submit like Jesus did in Gethsemane. Three, husbands lead like Jesus does the church. That's what submission means. Husbands lead like Jesus does the church. So listen, Jesus isn't cruel. Jesus doesn't say, fill my tea glass, woman. I want my steak medium rare. That's not what Jesus does. He doesn't run down the church. He dies for the church. He seeks the good of the church. Husbands love her like that. Make it easy for her to submit to your leadership because you're doing those things, right? Husbands, that starts with you, right? You get one verse next week, but it's, it's rough, so just buckle up. Number four, a single woman should only marry a man she can follow, right? So we do have ladies in this room that aren't married. Make sure you marry a guy that loves Jesus. Make it easy on yourself. Don't be that girl that marries a non-Christian and then has to suffer through it. Make sure you get it right the first time. Make sure they know and love Jesus. If they don't love Jesus, kick them out. Bye, see you later. Don't marry that guy. And number five, submission is that a Christian marriage shows the Trinity in the gospel. Jesus submits to God the Father God the Father and the Son sends the Spirit. All three are equal, but there's an authority in the Trinity. And ultimately it means this. Jesus takes responsibility for that which is not his fault. My sin, your sin, was not Jesus' fault. But Jesus took responsibility for it. So what it means then is men is this. Is it starts with us is that headship means a man takes responsibility for that which is not his fault. Right? You take responsibility for your family. You take responsibility for your wife. You know that God's going to hold you accountable for it. You feel the weight of that. And then you take responsibility. 
And then when you take responsibility, you'll love her better, you'll lead her better, you'll sacrifice for her better, you will lay down yourself for her, right? You will then realize that whenever that creeping resentment or that creeping separateness comes in, you'll do everything you can to correct it and to get rid of it so that you can be close to your wife, so that you can be with her, so that she can sacrifice, so that she can submit to your leadership, right? Because ladies, it would be much easier for you to submit to a man who leads like Jesus. It's much easier for a woman to submit and feel protected in that sort of relationship. And so ultimately, this whole thing is tied into the gospel. That Jesus takes responsibility for us, and therefore we take responsibility for our marriages. So if you would please pray with me this morning. With heads bowed and eyes closed. I, I know that there's, there's many of us in the room that there's some things maybe that, that we need to repent of, whether that's um, as men, first and foremost, not taking responsibility the way that we should in our marriages, um, maybe for not sacrificing, maybe for not um, speaking well to our wives, maybe uh, not loving them the way that we should, maybe just this, this, this creeping resentment that we allow in our own lives. And so uh, if you're a man in here, I would first and foremost say, hey, maybe there's some areas in your life that, that you need to repent of this morning in order to better um, love your wife and fix your marriage. As ladies, I would just ask you to see if there's areas in your life where maybe you're, you're putting him down or you're nagging or you're, you're not allowing him to lead and ask God just to, to, to work on your heart to, to help you to adorn yourself in that gentle and quiet spirit. And finally, maybe if there's somebody in here that doesn't know Jesus today, that as we've presented the gospel, that Jesus takes responsibility for that which was not his fault, that they would realize that their sin wasn't Jesus' fault, but he took responsibility for it. He took it and he nailed it to a cross. He satisfied the wrath of God in their place for their sins so that now they could be right with God based on what Jesus did, not on what they've done, and that today would be a day of salvation for them and that Jesus would change their lives. So Father, I thank you for all that you've given us. As believers, help us to live out the commands of scripture in a way that shows the culture around us that we love you, that our conduct is different, and that through that, that evangelistic focus to the world would be seen and that people would see that, man, this is the way that God designed it and that, that we would have the opportunity to share the gospel with, with many people. Father, thank you for the women in this room. I thank you for that, that text of scripture that just talks about how the, the, their confidence is in the Lord and so they know who's in charge and so they, they submit to him and they rest in him and that Father, they, they care for their household, they care for their families um, and I thank you that we have so many women like that in this room. We thank you for the moms that do those things and I pray that today they would be honored and taken care of uh, at their houses today, that their husbands and their children would love them well. Thank you for Jesus and what he's done and it's in your name we pray, amen. If you would please stand.